If you haven't turned to 1 Peter chapter 2, go ahead and do that and pray one more time real quick. Father, unless you come and illumine our minds by your spirit, uh, we'll never see Jesus and that's what we want to see this morning. So help us to see your son this morning and to taste and see that you are good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sean Groves is a Christian musician, I think he's still a musician, who lives in Nashville, and uh, he posted this on his blog several years ago about how he was driving down the road and someone pulled right in front of him and, and cut him off. And this is what he said on his blog about that experience. She cut me off. She made a left turn right in front of me. I was leaving Lowe's, the home repair store, trying to get home in time for my niece's birthday party. She was trying to get her Burger King fix faster. I slammed on the brakes and skid and honked the horn. I may have said a singular bad word in hopes that the Holy Spirit can not only interpret groanings, but also profanity to be a cry for immediate assistance, please. I was scared. I wasn't angry. Yet. Then she moved the phone from her hand to her neck cocked her head to hold it in place, and made a hand gesture with her now free hand. I came to a stop in the road, and also a metaphorical fork, and I chose to follow her into the Burger King drive through line. I pulled up beside her. She rolled up her windows without looking my way. So I screamed at her about how I have three kids and a wife who could have lost a father and husband because she was really hungry for a whopper and couldn't wait two seconds for me to pass by before turning. I told her she wasn't important enough to be endlessly on her cell phone. I informed her that I'm not 16. I'm an adult like she's dressed up to be. And adults talk about their problems with words not hand signals. I told her all that in my head as I was rolling down my window. But when she turned toward me and waved me away as if I were nothing more than a circling fly, I had a better idea. I smiled. Hey, I said, I thought I recognized you. She took her sunglasses off to get a better look at me. We go to the same church, don't we? I asked. I wish you could have seen the blood drain from her face as she rolled down her window and forced a smile. Of course, I was telling a lie, predicated on a safe bet here in a town where almost everyone goes to church at some point in the year. And sure, I guess that wasn't a better solution than if I'd shouted all those nasty things at her, but it was more fun. Sometimes preachers do this very thing. They use these shame techniques when preaching. Sometimes they go the shame route when declaring God's word. They pull up next to you and roll down their windows to make you feel bad. And they think if they can shame you and make you feel bad about who you are and your behavior, if they can get the blood to drain from your face, then that will lead to change in your life. They think that they can guilt you into change and guilt you into transformation. They forget or they don't know that grace is what changes us, not guilt. They forget or don't know that guilt and shame 
can never change people, at least long term. It might work for a short while, but only grace transforms. And sometimes preachers go the other route and they try to make you feel good with moralistic preaching. They want you to leave feeling happy and armed with life principles that you can apply to your life. These kinds of preachers treat Jesus as a life coach. They preach Jesus as a role model, Jesus as an example, Jesus as a life coach, Jesus as a guy who does good and and you should just follow him. And if you follow his example, then your life will be swell. Well, Michael Horton diagnoses that kind of preaching when he says this, Regardless of the official theology held on paper, moralistic preaching assumes that we are not really helpless sinners who need to be rescued, but decent folks who need good examples, exhortations, and instructions. Or as the late J. Gresham Machen famously said, what good does it do Me to tell me that the type of religion presented in the Bible is a very fine type of religion and that the thing for me to do is to just start practicing that type of religion now. I will tell you, my friend, it does not one tiniest little bit of good. What I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news for me? That is the question that I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? Peter would agree with both Michael Horton and Jay Gresham Machen because Peter is not a moralistic preacher and Peter is not a shame and guilt preacher. Peter's goal is not to get the blood to drain from the faces of his readers in his letter by guilting them and shaming them. Peter knows that grace changes people, transforms people, not guilt. Peter knows that Jesus is not our life coach, our example of how to live a good life. Peter knows that Jesus is our savior. And he's our savior because we are sinners and we need to be rescued, to be saved from our sins. In fact, Peter will tell us in this passage just how sinful we are and just how desperate we are to be saved. It's so much so that it took the eternal son of God going to the cross in order to save us. That's how sinful We are. And so Peter will rightfully call us sheep in this passage because sheep are messy and sheep are dirty and sheep are filthy and sheep stray and sheep get lost. Therefore, since the church is made up of sheep, it's going to be messy and it's going to be dirty around here. You have to understand that about grace. You have to understand that about this church. This place is full of sheep. I think, in fact, maybe it's over 700 times in the Bible. The Bible refers to sheep or having a shepherd because God wants to drill it into our heads because we think we're not that bad. 
This place, this church is full of sheep and therefore it is going to be messy. It is going to be dirty. It is going to be filthy and it is not going to be a clean place. So don't have ideas about cleaning up the church because as long as you and I are around, especially me, this place is not gonna be clean. This place is gonna be messy. We don't need more Clorox bleach around here We don't need sanitizer. What we need is a savior. A savior whose blood alone washes us. Whose blood alone cleanses us from all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our messiness. And that's precisely why Jesus came. To rescue us, to save us, as Revelation 1.5 says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. What an amazing verse. Revelation 1.5, you might want to memorize that one. Jesus came to rescue us, to free us from our sins by his blood. And that's why Peter slams on the brakes after verse 20 in our passage today. Because Peter has just told us in chapter 2, verses 13 to 20, that we are called to submit to our government. We're called to submit to our government leaders. We're called to submit to our bosses, even when they mistreat us. And Peter knows that we all struggle with this, don't we? In fact, I talked to many of you over the last few weeks, and you told me how you struggle to submit to your government. How you struggle to submit and honor the president. You struggle to submit to the government leaders that you disagree with. We all do. And some of you struggle to submit to your bosses. We all do. And Peter knew that his audience was struggling to submit in each of these relationships too. And Peter knows that in chapter three, he's going to start talking about submission in our marriages and submission in the church family. So what he does is he slams on the brakes after verse 20 in order to point his readers and to point us to Jesus one more time. Peter slams on the brakes and he wants to take a moment and rehearse the gospel before he continues his discussion of submitting in relationships. Now why? Why does Peter slam on the brakes after verse 20? Why doesn't Peter just move from talking about submitting to your government and submitting to its leaders and submitting to your bosses and why doesn't he just then jump straight to chapter three and start talking about submission in our marriages and then submission in the church family? Why does he slam on the brakes? Is it to shame his audience for not submitting well to their government and bosses? Is it to make them feel guilty for the ways that they have failed in submission to those authorities? Is it to heap shame and guilt on them for failing to submit to their government and their bosses? No. Peter slams on the brakes because he wants to give them hope, which is what we just sang in one of the songs. What is our hope Savior slain for us, smitten for us, despised. Peter wants to give them hope and power to live in the midst of all of these relationships, to help them and to motivate them to submit by showing how Jesus submitted and how Jesus suffered. And what is that hope? As the song declares, this is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the gospel. 
It's Jesus. Our hope in peace is the Lamb of God slain for sinners like us. So Peter slams on the brakes after verse 20 to point to Jesus one more time. And so please allow me to slam on the brakes in this sermon and give you our big idea today, which is this. Jesus is not your example of how to live a good life. He's your substitute because you have lived a bad life. He's not your example of how to live a good life. Jesus is your substitute because you have already lived a bad life because you're born a sinner. And so Peter will tell us that Jesus is not some good example for us to follow, even though he does say in verse 21 that Jesus left us an example. But Peter will go out of his way to stress that we don't need an example. We need a substitute. We need a savior. We need someone who will pay for all the bad that we have done, the bad life that we have lived because we're sinners, the bad life that we have lived because we have rebelled against God's holy law. We need a redeemer, not a role model. We need a perfect lamb, not a pattern to live by. And now let me show you that in God's word. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Remember, Peter has been talking about slaves in the previous verses who were suffering unjustly under their masters, some of them even being beaten by their masters, and he tells them that they have been called to suffer. All Christians have been called to suffer. Our calling in life is to suffer. This is the example that Jesus left us, that suffering precedes glory. Suffering in this life comes before the glory that we will enjoy. That's the example that Jesus left us. We will suffer in this life before we enjoy the glories of heaven. And this is exactly what we see with Jesus. He left the glories of heaven Eternity passed with his father. He came to the earth to live and die and suffer for sinners. And after his perfect life and perfect death, after his resurrection, then John 17, Jesus says, I'm going to return to the glory that I shared with my father before. So Jesus is our example. His life shows us the pattern that we are to follow, that we suffer in this life, and then one day we will experience and enjoy the glories of heaven. So suffering is our calling. In fact, suffering is one of the major themes of Peter's letter, and we'll see it as we progress through. But here Peter tells his readers that they have been called to suffer just like Jesus did, knowing that the glory awaits in the future when we finally see Jesus, our treasure, and our reward. That's what we saw last week. Suffer. This is a gracious thing. This is grace. This is a reward. You will get Jesus when you endure suffering now. So that's what we're called to do. Our calling as Christians, as exiles, as pilgrims and sojourners in this world is that we are called to suffer. We're called to imitate Jesus, to follow his example of suffering, to follow in his steps of suffering. And the picture that Peter has in mind here is something that a slave or a household servant in his day would have known. Peter says in verse 21 that Jesus left us an example the Greek word for example is hupa gramon. It's made up of two Greek words, hupo, which means under, like hypodermic needle, 
under the skin. And gramon, we get the word grammar from that, which means writing. So hupa gramon, the ESV translates as example, means literally underwriting. And what Peter is saying is that Jesus left us an example and underwriting. And he uses this word that was very common in Peter's day. The household servants and slaves in the Roman Empire would have known this word, hupa gramon, because this was the word that they would have used when they were teaching their children how to write. While children were being taught to write and to learn the alphabet, they would have used a block that was covered with clear wax, and then they would carve out or trace the letters that were underneath with a bevel. They didn't have whiteboards. They didn't have pen and paper. They would have letters that were carved into wood blocks, and they would cover these wood blocks with clear wax, and they would tell the children, trace the letter that you see underneath. That's how they learned to write. Kind of like teachers in my day used to put the uh, cursive writing up underneath the, the blackboard, you know, and they show you how to make the S, the capital, and the lowercase. That's kind of the idea here. In Peter's day, they had blocks with letters on them covered with clear wax, and the children would use a bevel, and they would see the letter underneath and trace it out in order to learn how to make the letters. They had an example, a hupa gramon, an underwriting of words and letters under the clear wax that they could trace and then learn. And here Peter is saying that Jesus left us an example, a hupa gramon, which is this, suffering precedes glory. The example that Jesus left us is this, we are called to go through this life and suffer in many different ways, suffer for being a Christian and suffer just because this world is broken and fallen. But we know that as we go through that suffering, future glory awaits. So Jesus is our pattern. When we suffer unjustly, we have to keep our eyes on the better and lasting possession as the writer of Hebrews describes it in 1034. They suffered, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, lost their property when they visited other believers in Christian because they knew, they counted joyfully, they let their property be plundered because they knew they had a better and lasting possession. So they could endure that suffering. And Jesus showed us how to suffer by keeping our eyes on that reward and the glory that will one day be ours because what does the writer of Hebrews then say in Hebrews chapter 12 verses one and two? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we look to Jesus, and we see that as he suffered, he kept his eyes on the joy and the glory that awaited him. And part of the joy that Jesus was looking for was you, Christian. Part of the joy that Jesus had his eyes on as he endured suffering and went to the cross was you. You were on his mind because he said, I'm going to the cross to save you and to save you and to save you. That was in our children's Bible that we read to our girls last night. I was like, this is perfect. I'm going to steal Sally Lloyd-Jones. Thoughts to make your heart sing. I'm sitting there reading. It's like, what's the joy? It's going to say the joy is the glory of God. And she says, part of the joy that Jesus looked forward to was you. 
Yes, he longed to be with his father, return to that glory, but part of the joy that enabled him to endure the suffering was that he knew, Christian, he would save you. Isn't that glorious? Man. And so we learn from Jesus' example, which means that as we suffer in this world, we keep our eyes on the joy that awaits us. And as we saw last week, we look to the grace, we look to the reward that will be ours one day, namely Jesus. We look to Jesus, who is our reward, which is why Peter slams on the brakes here and points his readers to Jesus once again. Look at verse 22. Let's see Jesus. Peter's pointing us to him. Verse 22, he committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. These verses should stagger us. I'm afraid we just read through them because maybe we know them. Jesus committed no sin. Think about that. He was never deceitful with his words when others reviled him when others spoke evil of him lied about him gossiped about him spoke abusively toward him he never retaliated he never ever 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 retaliated i retaliate all the time you mess with me you cross me you say something about me my gut instinct is to retaliate You revile me, I'm like, I'm coming right back at you, stronger and harder. That's me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus never did that once. We all do it, don't we? Someone says something about us, we just, he did not threaten. He just kept entrusting himself to the Father. He kept trusting the one person who could and would judge justly. These verses are amazing. And these verses are shocking because this entire world has been and always will be full of people who don't respond the way that Jesus did. This world has been and always will be full of people who do the exact opposite of what Jesus did. And yet some people actually think that they can do these things. Some people actually think they can do what Jesus did. The following story highlights this. Pastor D.M. Stearns, after a forceful sermon that he had titled Christ Our Savior, was accosted by a man after the sermon with this challenge. Why don't you preachers preach about Jesus as our example? Stearns replied, and if I preach him as example, will you follow him? Yes, replied the man confidently. That's exactly what I believe, following Jesus as our example. Fine, nodded the preacher. Let's see what the Bible says. It's not a bad thing to say in a conversation, right? Turning to 1 Peter 2.21, Pastor Stearns read about Christ, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. That's it, said the man. That's what I believe. And will you walk in his steps as here enumerated, insisted the preacher? The man declared that that was what he was trying to do. Who did no sin, the preacher read? Can you take that step? The man's response was surprised silence. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Can you take that step? The man stood in bewildered silence. 
who when he was reviled, reviled not again. Can you take that step? Met by total silence, Stearns emphatically declared, man, what you need first of all is a savior. This story is just another reminder that Jesus is not your example of how to live a good life. He's your substitute because you already have lived a bad life. We don't need an example. We need a substitute, someone to stand in our place. We need a savior. We need someone who will pay for the bad life that we have all lived because we are all born sinners and because we have all rebelled and broken God's law. We need a redeemer, not a role model. We need a perfect lamb and not a pattern to live by. And so when I read this section in 1 Peter, I know that I don't measure up. I've never done all of these things at one moment in my life. I think one moment in time, maybe I've done them sporadically, occasionally. But to always respond this way, the way that Jesus responded in these verses, it's flat out amazing to me. I mean, I'm flabbergasted. I'm astonished because I don't do these things. This verse makes my jaw drop. This verse humbles me. These verses show me for who I am, a sinner. The reality is that it is not possible to do these things perfectly like Jesus did. It's not possible to do these things completely and perfectly. So get that idea out of your head right away. You will never be able to pull off what Jesus did in these verses. You will never have a perfect record this way on your own. You'll never be able to pull it off. You'll never be able to trace Jesus this way. You'll never be able to copy him this way. Trust me, you'll never be able to pull it off. Some of you will not be able to make it out of the parking lot before you fail at being deceptive. Peter says Jesus wasn't deceptive, but some of you will leave this service and talk to someone, and you'll fudge something in a conversation. You'll paint yourself in a better light. You'll say something that's just not quite true, something deceptive, because you want to impress somebody or because you're living in the fear of man in that moment. You'll be deceptive. Some of you will be deceptive before you leave church today. And yet some people think they're not that bad. You know, there's always, you always hear these stories of people say, I haven't sinned in 20 years. I haven't sinned in two years. My first response is to like slap them or punch them or push them. Because I guarantee you they would. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. John Gerstner said this about John Ockengay, two preachers and seminary professors talking about each other. John Gerstner said that he heard John Ockengay say this, you may have deceived yourself into thinking you don't have any sin, but he said, you haven't deceived anyone else. Everybody else in your life knows that you're a sinner. See, some of us won't even make it out of the parking lot today before we're a little bit deceptive. Bend the truth just a little bit to get people to like us, to get people to think higher of us, to impress someone. And some of you will leave here and maybe your spouse will say something that just gets under your skin. They'll say something that about you and you'll get mad and you'll retaliate with some harsh words. 
Peter says Jesus never retaliated. He never reviled anyone. But some of us will slander someone, will revile someone as we leave church today. Maybe in conversation with your spouse as you leave the church. Some of you won't even make it out of the parking lot before you've retaliated in some way. Or before you have reviled or criticized this church or someone at this church. And some of you I know will threaten some people in the car on the way home. Peter says Jesus never threatened, but you'll threaten your kids. If you don't quit fighting in the back seat, you'll threaten them. And you'll threaten them big time. No more iPad for you. No more TV. No more sugar. No more you fill in the blank. And then you as a parent might not even follow through on your threats. Right? You ever do this, parents? You threaten your kids and you never follow through, you know you've done that. I'm just keeping it real here today, parents. We've all done this. So some of us won't even be able to make it out of the parking lot before we are deceptive or before we retaliate or revile or threaten. And some of you may totally disagree with me right now and you think that you can pull this off perfectly, but you have deceived yourself. And you might revile me on the way home and say that you disagree with me and you may even threaten to leave this church. You see, we're all exposed. God's law exposes us as sinners. We're messy sheep. But this passage comes along and puts the spotlight on Jesus where it belongs, on the one, the only one, the one who never sinned, never was deceitful, never retaliated with his words, never threatened, and never reviled. The perfect lamb of God with no blemish. What a savior we serve, grace. What a glorious savior we serve. How merciful he is to messy sinners like us. It's just another reminder that Jesus is not your example of how to live a good life. He's your substitute because you have lived a bad life. As Charles Spurgeon said, no man can ever follow Christ's example until he has first believed in him as his substitute and savior. Christ had not come merely to be an example. When we are dead in trespasses and sins, of what use can his example be to us? It is life that dead men need, and Christ came to bring us life. In our natural state, we are condemned already because we have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Of what use would an example of perfect innocence be to those who are already condemned? None whatever. But Jesus comes to bring us pardon, bought with his own precious blood, that then, through gratitude to him, we might begin a new life, and then his example might be of service to us. It behooves us first and foremost to view Christ as the sin bearer. For if we do not receive him in that capacity, we have missed eternal life altogether. And all our professed imitation of Christ will be but mere empty formality, which will fall far short of the righteous requirements of God. We don't need an example We need a substitute. We need a savior. We need someone who will pay for the bad life that we have lived because we're all born sinners and because we have all broken God's law. We're rebels. We need a redeemer, not a role model. 
We need a perfect lamb, not some pattern to live by. We need a savior, grace, not some example of how to live a good life. And that's exactly what Peter will tell his audience. Peter slams on the brakes, rolls down his windows in order to point his readers to Jesus because he he knows that they have not lived good lives. They have not done the good, the good things, the good deeds that they should have done. Peter knows that they have not submitted to their government and its leaders and their bosses, their masters. So Peter points them to Jesus because he knows that they have failed to adequately submit to the authorities in their lives. And what they needed desperately was to see Jesus again and again and again. And so do we. So let me roll down my windows and point you to Jesus once again. He's there in verse 24 as well. Look, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. These verses too should stagger us. Remember what I said earlier, Jesus committed no sin. He was never deceitful with his words. When others reviled him, spoke evil of him, lied about him, gossiped about him, spoke abusively towards him, he never retaliated. He did not threaten. He just kept entrusting himself to his father. He kept trusting the one person who could and would judge justly. Over and over and over again, Jesus kept trusting his father and saying, Father, my life is in your hands. You are with me. I know this, and I know that this suffering will turn out for glory. I know that there is joy at the end of all of this suffering. Never retaliated, never reviled, never sinned. And all of that is amazing because Peter says here that he bore our sins on the cross. And yet he never sinned. The one who never did all these things never sinned. He's the one who went to the cross for us people who could never do these things perfectly. And this was God's plan all along. Your Bible may not tip you off to this, but Peter is liberally quoting Isaiah 53 in verses 22 to 25. Peter is quoting the song of the suffering servant out of Isaiah chapter 53, a chapter you're familiar with, I'm sure. Let me read Peter's words again from verses 22 to 25, and I'll show you on the screens just how liberally he is quoting Isaiah here. The bold font on the screens will show you where Peter is quoting Isaiah 53. It says this, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
The prophet Isaiah prophesied of Jesus in what is called the song of the suffering servant. And Peter quotes Isaiah liberally here to show that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, which means he took the curse of the law that should have fallen upon us. He took that upon himself. He never sinned. He never broke God's commandments. He perfectly obeyed the law of God, even as a three-year-old, even as a teenager. Perfectly obeyed the law, and yet he went to the cross and was slaughtered, crucified on a tree for us to bear the curse of the law for lawbreakers like us, for rebels like us. So the lawmaker became a curse bearer for lawbreakers like us. And Jesus did this so that we would once and for all die to sin's power over us, so that we would no longer be slaves of sin anymore. What does Peter mean when he says, die to sin and live to righteousness? He means that we have died to sin's power and it no longer has mastery over us. We are not slaves to sin anymore. We're free. Sin is not our master anymore. To die to sin is a metaphorical way to refer to the decisive separation from sin that Jesus accomplished for believers through his death. In other words, the tyranny of sin over our lives has been toppled. Yes, we are still sinners, but sin is not our master anymore. Jesus is our master. We are now, as Paul says in Romans 6.18, slaves of righteousness. That means that we are now slaves of the imputed righteousness of Christ that God gives to us, that he credits to us. As the song declares, this is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It means that we are slaves now to Jesus' perfect record of law-keeping his sinless life is now our master. Jesus' perfect righteousness is now our master. That's where we take our cues from. We are no longer slaves to sin or slaves to, that the condemnation of the law brings. We're no longer slaves to guilt and shame and condemnation. We no longer have to experience the blood draining from our faces as we come to grips with our sinfulness because now there is no condemnation for those who are in union with Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. So we can admit our sin and not have the blood drained from our faces because sin is not our master anymore. Our master now is the perfect righteousness of Jesus that God credits and gives to us. Now, we are slaves to imputed righteousness. The perfect record of law keeping of Jesus, that is now our new master. This is why Jesus died. That we would die to sin's mastery over us, die to its lies, die to sin's deception, and live to righteousness. And then point to Jesus as better than anything that sin promises us. To live to righteousness means that we point to Jesus as our treasure. Jesus as our reward. Jesus as our exceeding joy. And that he alone satisfies us. 
This is what it means to be healed because our eyes have been opened to the person that we are made for, which is God, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's what it means to be healed. As the song declares, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Through Jesus' work on the cross, through his wounds, we are healed, we are made whole, meaning we are made right with a holy God. We are justified, we are declared righteous in God's eyes because Jesus died in our place as our substitute, as our savior, as our redeemer. And that's why Tim Keller said this, Jesus, as only an example, will crush you. You will never be able to live up to it. But Jesus, as the lamb, will save you. The perfect lamb of God became a dirty, messy, vile sheep who was led to the slaughter for dirty, messy, vile sheep who deserved to be led to the slaughter. Do you see the picture? Peter says it, quoting Isaiah. So Isaiah says it, we're like straying sheep. As I said earlier, sheep are messy. They're Filthy, they're dirty, they stink, and they're dumb. You know we're just a bunch of dumb sheep, don't you? We're filthy, we're messy, we're dirty, we're dumb sheep. And a perfect lamb was sacrificed for us and shed his blood for us to bring us to our shepherd, the one who watches over our souls. A perfect lamb was sacrificed for and bled for messy, dirty, filthy sheep like us in order to bring us to our shepherd, the overseer of our souls. That is mind-blowing. Slam on the brakes this morning, Grace. Slam on the brakes and see Jesus again. Slam on the brakes, roll down the windows and see the perfect, sinless lawmaker going to the cross and becoming a curse for lawbreakers like us. See his blood shed to wash messy, dirty, filthy sinners clean. We don't need sanitizer around here. We need a savior. What Scotty Smith said is true. You cannot shock Jesus with your sin nor persuade him to leave you alone in it. He came for sinners. It's who he came for. He's not shocked when we come to him with our sin. He's like, exactly who I came for. He'd be shocked if he could. He's sovereign and omniscient. If he came to him and said, I'm not that bad. He wouldn't be shocked. He'd just be like, you're deceived. He came for sinners. He was slaughtered for sinners. So you can't shock him with your sin. And you can't persuade him to leave you alone in it either. And now the question today is, have you personalized it? Peter says in verse 21, Christ also suffered for you. Have you personalized that verse this morning? If you are a Christian, you need to be flabbergasted once again that Jesus suffered on the cross for you for all the bad things that you have done your entire life. Think about your sins. Think about all those things that you're ashamed of, those things you're like, if I could take that back, that word back, that action, that thought, that motive. Think about all the guilt. And now see Jesus suffering on the cross for you. See his blood being shed to wash you clean. 
So personalize it this morning. He suffered for me. He suffered for me, my sins, all the terrible things that I've thought, said, done, and all the terrible motives that were driving everything that I thought, said, and did. And if you're not a Christian, will you run to Jesus today? Will you repent of your sin and rebellion, own up to it, admit it, fess up, and trust in the only one who can give you the righteousness that you need to stand in the presence of a holy God? All you have to do is say, have mercy on me, Lord Jesus, because I'm a sinner. What a savior. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We don't need sanitizer to clean up the church. We have a savior. Let's slam on the brakes and end this sermon so that we can stand and sing once again about our savior, our substitute, Jesus. Father, how wonderful your love is to send your son to give him up. You made him a new no sin to be sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God, have the righteousness of God. What nasty, vile, grotesque things we have all done. And your son went to the cross and said, I'll take their blame. Pour out your wrath on me so they can be free, so they can be clean. It is amazing. It's too good to be true, God. On one hand, I don't believe it. And on the other hand, I believe it. I don't believe it. I'm flabbergasted, but I believe it, God. Would you cause us to see your son once again by the power of your spirit that he would say today, he is our exceeding joy. For our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.